welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. We have two speakers who are going to speak to the theme of We Came to Believe, steps one through three. I'd like to invite to the podium our first speaker, Dave B. Good evening. My name is Dave, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. All my friends are at this front table here, I can see. Uh, Can everybody hear me back there? kind of fighting a cold, so I'll try to stay close to this mic. We admitted... We admitted we were powerless over lust, that our lives had become unmanageable. I thought I had conquered lust when I was 25 years old. In 1963, and I felt I was coming to the end of my life, I had been acting out since I was about 13, pretty serious forms of acting out, and I had reached a point in my life when I felt there really wasn't any meaning to life, that it was one big sensation after another big sensation. But in all of that effort to find love through lust, all I found was frustration, depression, alienation, isolation. I got, I had actually left the practice of my faith uh, when I was probably 14 or 15. So I really didn't have God to call on. One day, When it was particularly coming to a head, I couldn't work, and I went to Huntington Beach on a spring morning and started pacing up and down the beach, wondering why I was alive and wishing I were dead. I finally came, after about a half hour, to a point where it was it was I that had to decide decide the meaning of my life and it didn't matter 
what I decided, it was up to me. In other words, the truth was whatever I decided it was. And what I did really didn't matter. Uh, my, I created my own morality, that sort of thing. I was just lost and intent upon, if the, if the meaning of my life wasn't outside of myself, then I would create whatever it was, and whatever I decided was right would be right. Before I kept hoping I'd make some kind of connection in all of my lust connections to find that meaning and to find love, but I didn't do it. Anyway, I was just about to leave the beach. I turned around, and I felt as if something had touched me on my right shoulder, and I turned around. Of course, there's nobody there. The beach, beach was deserted. But I looked up in the sky, and at that moment, I realized I wasn't alone. From that day on, I realized that God was there. He existed and was the meaning of my life. So I did what every good Catholic boy should do. I went to the library and picked up Thomas Aquinas and started reading him. <laughs> and <clears throat> within probably a few weeks, I found myself in the confession, giving my first confession in about 12 or 13 years. So I had found God, and I found a way out of my dilemma. I came to realize that he was present in my life. He did care, otherwise he wouldn't have made himself known to me. And it was not something I did myself. I, I, I was so overwhelmed by the experience that I wanted to just drop to my knees right there, and I didn't have the courage. There were cars passing on Pacific Coast Highway, and so I just wimpishly went off to my car. But... <clears throat> the point is, it wasn't enough. I stayed sober for three years by white-knuckling it, by essentially repressing my sexuality, and by, in a sense, feeling as if this is what I had to do to gain God's love and acceptance. Obey his commandments, stay sober, uh, and this was up to me. I became very active in my church. I eventually went into the seminary, and I fell at, in the seminary three years, about three years after I had reconciled with the church. I was overwhelmed but and, and uh, really thrown into another crisis, but I left the seminary, and I started group therapy. I started reading about my problems and hope to find some salvation, you know, for that problem. So anyway, I better go on with this, otherwise I'll never get through. I typed this thing out on my computer, but I, I'm not going to follow it too much. I'll have to remember it. <clears throat> the point is, is that 
for 20 years after that, I slipped and I slipped and I slipped. I could go for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and then I'd have to go out. Uh, and it always occurred in the same way. It was something that I felt I had to control, my sexuality, that I was responsible for it, that if I prayed, I used the sacraments, I went to group therapy, individual therapy, I'd eventually get well. And I never lost hope in that. I uh, even started some support groups and with with a priest's help, and and they they did help, but I could never get sober after that. I would eventually fall and be back in my state of depression, and then the whole cycle would start again. And I know you fellows have all been there, so I don't have to go into a lot of detail. Uh, my acting out took all kinds of forms. I, I I didn't I didn't molest children, rape women, or use animals, but I probably could have gotten there, I suppose. By the time uh, 1975 rolled around, I was totally convinced that I was totally powerless, that nothing I could do, no human science could remove this addiction. I went to Lourdes, as a matter of fact, and this I didn't go there for this purpose, but when I was there, I... I uh, Decided to stop by and see if I could get some help. And I went into the baths. As you know, a lot of crippled people have been healed there. Uh, and I was certainly crippled. My brother was with me, and he went in <clears throat> after I did. And I noticed that when they dipped him into the pool, he went down body and head and was covered com- completely. Whereas when I went down, I was I kept my head above the water. So I uh, toddled off to one of the baths where there weren't anybody, wasn't anybody there. So I stuck my head in the water. But my prayer was that I would, I would, God would help me uh, get sober. And I came away with a feeling of confidence and peace. But I slipped and slipped for another ten years. In 1981, I started going to some AA meetings and began thinking about the 12-step program on this addiction. And in 1985, I discovered through my spiritual director and was referred to AA, and AA gave me Roy's number, and I called him and and went to my first meeting uh, June 8, 1985. And by the grace of God, I haven't had to act out since that time. What I learned was not only that I was powerless over this addiction, but that only God could help me. That if I had found the best shrink in the world, with all due respect to psychologists and psychiatrists, if there be any here today, I had reached a point at which I was really out of control. I had come to believe in God, but I had not come to believe that he would cure me, rescue me from this disease. I felt that was something I had to do to prove my worthiness of his love. Big 
bad mistake. 20 years of cyclic depression and, and uh, self-will never got me out of this. So I encourage all those who are slipping and have problems with slipping to keep coming back and eventually make that connection with God because he can do it for you. I was sober probably two years, three years before I ever made my fourth step. I sort of got a kick in the rear by Roy, which helped me get off my duff and start working the steps. I did do service and I did go to meetings, but it was only about three or four years ago that I came to realize that I had surrendered my sexuality to God and he had gotten me sober, but I had not surrendered my will and my life. I read the third step probably for the first time after six years of sobriety. And so I began to apply the 12 steps more and more to other aspects of my life. I did make that decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And since then, the same miracle that has happened with regard to my sexuality is happening in my work, in my anger, in my frustration, in my resentments, in my financial dealings, in my my tendency to lie and steal and manipulate and act. I mean, I think I'm addicted to everything, or could be. Television, food. I'm just, I'm just sort of a, a self, kind of self-indulgent sort of guy. And... I don't know why they asked me to speak, really, <laughs> except <laughs> those are just my flaws. But but I am, I am, I feel a miracle of God's love. Because he didn't love me when I was trying to be good or was good or was able to be good for two or three weeks. He loved me when I was helpless and I was crying and near despair and angry that I couldn't do it. And I finally had to say, I give up. I can't beat this. And it was at that time, actually 10 years before I got on the program, that I began to have some confidence that someday this addiction would be lifted by God in his own good time. When I came into the program back in 85 and Roy was there, Mike and Lewis and John B. and all the old fellows that John isn't with us anymore and I hope he doesn't have to surrender anymore. I hope he's done all the surrendering he needs to do. But uh, I just listened. I didn't share, I think, for the first two or three meetings. And, and I just listened to what they described their experience as being and heard about surrender and things like that. And I said, well, I'll try it. And I did. The next time I was ready to act out, I brought God for the first time 
I brought God into that lust situation, that temptation. And I didn't have to do it. I had actually reached a point of no return, I guess, what would have been a point of no return, which was my my typical thing was a double scotch and hit the streets and like Dracula go hunting for a victim. But but I didn't have to do it. Then I didn't have to do it again the next day. And then I didn't have to do it the next day. And I began to come back to the meetings and I began to realize that, hey, this thing is working. Either that or it's a pretty nifty trick and I'm just going to keep doing it. The, the thing is, is that I'll do it until I'm disappointed and then I'll, I'll check something else out. I'm, I'm glad I didn't fall because I'd have probably been one of those guys who never come back because I'd be too embarrassed. And I hate to say that, but it's probably the truth. So, so I, had, I did my slipping outside the meeting. I was highly motivated by the time I got to this meeting. There's nothing, no greater motivation, I think, than, than uh, a sorry state to bring you here. So if you're feeling bad, you're in the right place at the right time. Hope that cheers you up. <laughs> okay. I don't think Ted was at my first meeting because I think he was at some convention somewhere, but or, or working on one. I wanted to just share finally <clears throat> some of the things I've learned in the program, and I hope it might help you. One of the things that you experience in sobriety is freedom. Sexuality for me was a slave master. I didn't have any control over that. It controlled me. It was like the werewolf when the moon is full, you know, you're insane. And that freedom has never left. I mean, to be free of being enslaved. I, I'm enslaved in a lot of other ways, but I'm gaining freedom over those as I apply these steps to those problems. The second thing that I experienced was peace. For the first time, I didn't have the fear of getting into a situation where I'd lose it. Or I would never get wound up to a point where I had to act out to compensate or whatever, whatever the ritual or the, the triggers were. I learned how to stop and be quiet and pray. Uh, I think that's probably the thing that I would love to achieve more than anything else is just to get off the rat race, off the merry-go-round. This, this a cycle of modern life that is supposed to be so great, oh boy, it's driving me crazy. It's like living in a machine. And I have to surrender that and, and let God heal those frustrations, those limitations, and that anxiety that I still have to deal with uh, more now than ever before. As a matter of fact, in some ways I'm busier, more harassed uh, uh, than, than ever before in my life. Uh, I'm more seriously involved with things, and, uh, and yet I don't lose the peace. 
I mean, I suffer. It's one of the things I learned in the program, no pain, no gain. I, I avoided pain by acting out. When, when I was acting out, I, it, it feels good when you're doing it. It's an illusion, and it's an illusion that has a price to it, eventually brings you to despair. And I'll just sum up here. Sobriety is not easy, but it's worth the pain and the effort. I have come to realize that being good is just is not the way God loved me. It's being weak, being frustrated, being angry, and turning to Him and feeling His love and His help to survive that. I've learned how to surrender resentments. I didn't think I was subject to it, but I've done it. And it works. Pray for the person you resent. Pray for the person who's who's dumped on you. Uh, I've also come to realize that parents, brothers, sisters, if I were married, uh, my spouse is not a god. She would not be able to supply me with everything. So it's God whose love we hunger for most of all. And without that, I don't see what you can bring to a marriage. I found the truth in God, beauty, goodness, love. But be careful. I know that I felt that I took this program like I took religion where the harder you try, you know, the more more you do, the better it is. It doesn't work. I don't care how well a program you work. It's not a program that keeps you. It's not your working the program that keeps you sober. It certainly approves a disposition and a help. But it's God's grace. And that requires a humbling experience of saying, if I do everything perfectly or near perfectly, I'll be okay. Not true. And my time up? My time's up? Okay. So I'm grateful for my disease because it was through the disease that I came to feel God's love. I think if I had done it on my own, I would never have experienced it was not when I was good that God loved me. It was when I was broken and needing him. So the solution, as you, wherever you are in the program, wherever you are in your relationship to God, is in his grace and in his love. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dave. This is an international conference, and we have people from all over the country. And I'm told there are even people here. Uh, there's SA members here from Japan and also from England. And there may, may even be others from other countries. But almost it's like around the corner in that perspective that we welcome to the podium from Nashville, Tennessee, Lee T.
Okay, my name's Lee, and I am a sexaholic. Can y'all hear me all right? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I uh, I started thinking about this being uh, coming coming to believe and having faith, and uh, as I thought about it, uh, as an obsessive compulsive nut who has all sorts of uh, magical thinking and superstitions, I must have faith if I got up at 3 o'clock in the morning, California time, and got in an airplane and flew here to give a talk on Friday the 13th. So, so the program does work. Uh, I, uh, I want to uh, uh, thank Ted and... Um, Doreen and uh, Mary and everybody I've talked to on the phone that have helped um, me plan getting here and for asking me to come share. And this will be the first part of uh, my sharing and uh, kind of the spiritual corner. And we'll uh, uh, carry on for any of those who are interested in the workshop in the morning for the rest of it. Um, what I, uh, I was asked as they talked to me about coming uh I was going to kind of uh, give you the other side of the picture uh, as somebody who comes from a uh, more of an agnostic point of view and how does spirituality work for me and how have uh, how have I come to believe uh, from that from that viewpoint uh, just in a little way of, of qualifying as um, I, you know, I really am a sexaholic, uh, and this disease almost killed me. Uh, I was introduced to masturbation at age five. Uh, I became quickly uh, tri-addicted, as they say. Uh, anything I tried, I was addicted to. And uh, I, uh, I, I was quickly addicted to food uh, and quickly started to combining chemical experiences with my sexual acting out in order to enhance the uh, enhance the experience, uh, and this led to the progressive insanity of the disease, as you all know, uh, because it doesn't rest uh, at all; it progresses. Uh, and by 1981 and 82, I was uh, in psychotherapy twice a week, uh, trying to figure out why I was doing all the crazy things that I did. And I tried that for four years uh, and took all of the antidepressants and things that they gave me. And by 1985, was hiding in the office of my, in my office bathroom during a work day, masturbating and injecting intravenous cough syrup in my femoral vein. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it was obviously life-threatening stuff I was doing. And I could not stop despite all of the knowledge of four years of psychotherapy. I had uh, tried early on in my childhood religion, and um, I was brought up uh, in the Methodist church, and as a matter of fact, uh, for about four or five years, I tried to read the Bible uh, and studied it uh, as a kid um, to try to get some solutions. And I remember I would read it every night before I'd go to bed. I would put it up and then masturbate and go to sleep. And uh, needless to say, I didn't have very many spiritual experiences. Uh, as, uh, as my disease progressed, uh, I became more intolerant and judgmental of the, um, of the stuff I was reading. And by the time I was 18 years old, I decided that it didn't make any sense. 
I didn't believe it, and I left the church. Uh, I have not been back to church since then, but that doesn't mean that I still no longer believe. And that's what I wanted to talk about, is, is that I, uh, as I went down the, the road of crashing and burning with my disease, what finally took me into the recovery process was the chemical use. You know, I was a compulsive masturbator primarily, and all of my acting out was isolated. Uh, and uh, uh, it was the chemical use that was threatening my life. But it was only when I masturbated. I didn't use any other time. Uh, and uh, I realized that I was going to have to stop masturbating in order to live. So that uh, by 1985... I consented to be uh, essentially chemically castrated with a medication to stop my masturbation. And that was the only way I could stop acting out. Shortly after that, though, I had to go to treatment because I had also confessed all of my narcotics use. And I, uh, I went uh, to this treatment center. And uh, I got there, and one of the first things that happened was is that they ran us in one morning... And a guy shows up uh, who is a Catholic priest wearing a collar. Fortunately for me, this man in the collar was a remarkable human being who had, the, who had a new idea, who had something that shifted my whole perspective as I saw spirituality. Uh, and that's what I want to share because that has actually changed my life. Uh, and I, I remember that he, had, he made the real big point that what we had to have in order to get recovery was a deep and effective spiritual experience. As a matter of fact, it's on page 25 of the AA Big Book written in italics, and it says there is a solution. And, uh, and the important thing that he says is that there was no, it was not necessary to be religious in order to be spiritual. And uh, that spirituality didn't even involve having to talk about God. And I said, okay, let's explain this. So, to make a long story short, uh, and I can, I can make this very long, but I won't. Um, to make a long story short, uh, this man, whose name is Noel B., uh, uh, and he still lives in Atlanta, is an interesting fellow in himself, and and uh, But at any rate, he said that he had four spiritual minimums, uh, that if I would consider these, that, um, that I might actually have a chance to recover. And the first thing he started out, before he did these minimums, he said, let's define spirituality. He said, for purposes of what we need to know, spirituality is derived from the ancients who felt that the seed of life was in the breath or the spirit. So that when people stopped breathing, they had lost their life. So that to be spiritual just means that there is breath and that there is life. So that to be spiritual just means to be alive. And that's all one has to do in order to be spiritual. Does it okay, I can buy that. And he said, how do, I, how do I get spiritual? He said, well, uh, for the purposes of today, let's try four spiritual minimums. And he says, I think, like to think just minimum and just start these. He says, first thing is 
as far as the first minimum and the primary basic thing for recovering people is don't use sobriety. As long as I am involved in an obsessive and consuming relationship with a substance or a behavior, I have no space for any spiritual connections. And as that substance or behavior consumes my life, I have really no life. And, and I don't have space to live, and I don't have space to uh, establish spiritual relationships of any sort as long as I'm using. So spiritual minimum, number one, had to be just don't use one day at a time. I said, okay, I can buy that. I said, what's spiritual minimum number two? Spiritual minimum number two is meetings. Go to meetings. You know, all of the uh, spiritual movements or most of the spiritual movements throughout history have really been uh, predicated on some sort of fellowship so that there is something in the power of coming together that connects us to some power greater than ourselves. So coming to meetings uh, allows me to start establishing relationships uh, outside of my using behaviors. And it gives me a connection to something other than my substances and behaviors. So it's, it's, it's spiritual minimum number two. And it, and it was a big point. It says is that when I come to meetings, I don't just come and absorb what's there because it doesn't work by osmosis. It says that I have to participate and be a part of the meeting process in order to really uh, absorb some of the power and spiritualities that's there. So, spiritual minimum number two was meetings. Spiritual minimum number three was sponsorship. And sponsorship is what the whole program of recovery has been built on. And if we look back to the very beginnings of the AA movement, uh, there was no big book, there was no steps, and there was no meetings. There were only two alcoholics who got together and shared with each other that they couldn't stay sober. And that there was something about the magic in that one-on-one -on -one sharing that connected them to something that was greater than themselves and allowed them both to stay sober the rest of their lives. So that sponsorship is what the whole program is founded on. So having a sponsor, and again, importantly, using the sponsor. This is one of the greatest mistakes is to get a sponsor and to not use them. You know, I've got a sponsor and... I call him once a year. And that's not true. That doesn't help. I have to make phone contacts one-on-one -on -one every day. And I do that with several people every day. So spiritual minimum number three is sponsorship. Um, spiritual minimum number four is time. You know, things take time. There are two aspects of time that is a spiritual minimum. And I realize that none of these things have mentioned God. And so He had me, you know. I was right in there with him. I said, okay, I can try this. Time. You know, first thing, we have to be patient, he said, when we, when we get these, uh, uh, start doing these minimums. And uh, if you don't use and go to meetings, you will be contacted, he said. Um, God will show up. And I said, be patient. And guess what? That was true. Time has been an important factor. And again, it's not just time, it's clean time. Again, have to remember that spiritual minimum number one is sobriety. And so staying clean is the most important part 
of giving time a chance to work. The other part of time that is important as far as being a spiritual minimum to me is to take time. I have to take time to give to the actions of recovery. You know, I can't be too busy to call my sponsor. I can't be too busy to go to meetings. I can't be too busy to do service. And so that investing time in the recovery process is just as important as giving it time to have an effect. And after I put those into uh, effect in my life, you know, miracles happened. And the, and the thing did say is that God did show up and, and that I have had the chance to have some sobriety and recovery. And, and as I apply those three spiritual minimums to my uh, recovery process, I now understand the first steps in a little bit better way. Because the first three steps are steps that involve action. I have to take spiritual actions in, in order to have them work for me. And, and just as, uh, as I go through those today, I have simplified steps one, two, and three greatly. Because that's the only way I can remember and do things. If I get them too complex, then I'm lost. You know, I get lost in overcomplicating things. But if I say that each one of them requires some action, here's my simple three-step action. Step one means to do something. And what does it mean to do? It means to surrender. And what do I have to do to surrender? Well, you know, I could go to all sorts, and I did. I went gone to all sorts of therapy, and I've read all sorts of books, and I have sorted through all sorts of information to find out what the deep and effective meaning of surrender is. And I've given talks on it. And boy, I mean, they even asked me to talk about it in treatment, surrender. Um, but surrender means to actually do something. And what does it mean to do? For me, it's very simple. It means don't use and go to meetings. That's it. I mean, if I stop trying to control the uh, using behaviors, if I stop trying to deal with lust and control it, I don't, I've, surrendered the, I've surrendered the fantasy that I am in any sort of control when it comes to lust or any of my other using behaviors. So, don't use and go to meetings is a very simple way that I say that I need help and I show up in order to ask for that help. Number two, step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That's about faith. And faith, for somebody who had trouble with the God stuff, was a real tough thing. But the rudiments of faith actually is just simply coming to meetings and believing in the experience of others. Belief in the experience of others is the beginning of faith. The miracle of that is, is that when I believed in the experience of others, and if you can do it, I can do it, and I showed up and kept coming back, it dawned on me several years into this thing that I now believed in my own experiences. I had experienced my own miracle. And that that was the miracle of step two. Is that I began to believe in my own, own experiences. Not my own power, just my own experiences. And 
And for me to take action to demonstrate that, what I have to do is to share that experience and to carry it to newcomers and to anybody else that needs to hear that. Step three says, made a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understood God. And that's the cornerstone of this whole thing. Is I didn't understand God. As a matter of fact, I didn't want to understand God. Uh, however, if I read down to step 12, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I said, okay, a spiritual awakening, that's what I want to have. I really don't want to understand God. What I want to do is experience God. And this is about having a spiritual experience and not a spiritual understanding. So that it says, as I had to turn my life and my will over to the care of the higher power. But it tells me in step 12 that I have to have this spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So that in order to take step 12, Three, all I have to do is make a decision. And I have to make a decision to pursue this spiritual experience and this spiritual um, awakening. And what do I have to do? I have to work the steps. So that step three said I made a decision to work the steps. And in very simply stated, step three said every time I come to a meeting and make a decision to keep coming back, then I've taken step three. Because the process of experiencing God and trusting God enough to turn my life and my will over to the care of that power, whatever it is, is what this pro program is all about. And so that's what I am involved in doing today. Having done those simple things, you know, miracles have happened. As I said, I did those things and I have done those things in conjunction with the whole fellowship uh, of S.A., over the past uh, nine years or so, and, uh, and, and the miracles have happened. God did show up, but it wasn't the God that I sought through religion. It, as it's a God that I don't understand, uh, I am sure it's the same God that I was seeking through religion, except I just didn't experience it through religion. It took another way for me to experience that God. And I do experience that today because I've experienced my own miracle. And, and, that, and in order to be open to that, I had to be in desperate despair. And I had to also have a burning desire to survive and experience life. When I had those things in combination, I was willing to hear uh, the spiritual messages that came and let go of my judgments. And, and that's been the key uh, to really continuing uh, my life so that I didn't die as I was certainly destined to do in 1985 before I came here. So my time is up, and I really thank you all for being here and listening, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the weekend. Thanks. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.